1: Not only do you upgrade to FAIR, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's thinking maybe I should stop clicking on all the links that Mohammed bin Salman has been texting me, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is David Kay, a clinical professor of law at the University of California at Irvine. He's also the United Nations special rapporteur on freedom of opinion and expression. And last year he wrote a very important book called Speech Police, The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet. David, welcome to Recode Decode. Kara, thanks for having me. I have wanted to ha- talk to you about this for a long time. Since, as you know, this is all my area that I've been like hammering away on, and you are doing the actual work mm-hmm. uh, to be doing that. The reason I'm having you here is I've wanted to have you here for a long time, but y- you you recently came into the news for a very important reason. You were part of the the release of the information about MBS, uh, who is the Saudi prince who runs Saudi Arabia, and and Jeff Bezos's phone, which is mm-hmm. probably one of the weirder stories and more menacing stories, actually. Mm-hmm. If you think the world's richest man can be so easily hacked. I want to get to that in a minute, but I want to give people a background of what you do. Um, besides being a law professor and everything like that, what is—you focus on uh, the area around surveillance and people being tracked.
3: I mean, I do. Yeah. So I monitor freedom of expression right. around the world. So mm-hmm. it's not just digital, yeah. although a big chunk of it has become digital over right. the last several years. But, but yeah, we report to the U.N. on all things freedom of speech related. So
2: tell me how that works. How did you get that? Give me your background. People like know yeah. people's background.
3: My background, well, it begins over 50 years ago <laughs> in a small town. So I, um, So basically, I I started, I was interested in international law, Mm -hmm. international issues from a really young age. So I focused on that when I was at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first job for 10 years, I worked at the State Department as a lawyer. And then I went into academics. I started a human rights program at UCLA and then went to UC Irvine.
2: And at the State Department, you did what? You worked on just various and sundry.
3: Yeah. I mean, the way lawyers work at the State Department is you rotate around every few years. But I did the main thing that that I did that I was most interested in was humanitarian law. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of work around the Geneva conventions after 9-11 mm-hmm. which kind of told me I got to get out of this place. Right. Uh, and so I went academic uh, um, and I went back home to Los Angeles and in LA I started the human rights program at UCLA at the mm-hmm. law school and then went to UC Irvine uh, when Erwin Chemerinsky, you know, famous constitutional law mm-hmm. scholar started up the program there, started up the law school a little over 10 years ago.
2: And to explain when you were talking about doing the human rights of I mean, it's all around the globe. This has been something that's been a long time mm-hmm. uh, issues and not, you, but you've moved into digital. But talk a little bit about why you were interested in that and what you were doing there.
3: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I so I became interested in human rights actually as a teenager. So I grew up in a in a Jewish community in which Mm -hmm. Soviet Jewry was the big thing. I mean, if Mm -hmm. you go back to the '70s and '80s, the big issue was freedom of movement for the Jews of the Soviet Union, and that was that was kind of where I cut my teeth. Leave the Soviet Union, yeah, exactly. And then um, and when I was sixteen, I went on a trip to Poland, which was it was Solidarity era Poland and visited concentration camps. And I was I was really, at that moment, very focused on, you know, as a kid, uh, sort of what happened. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it always started with book burnings. Mm-hmm. You know, I was always interested in the fact that repression—I mean, ultimately, the Holocaust began with the repression of the mind, mm-hmm. with the repression of speech. So that's always been kind of core to the way I thought about the world and about human rights, studied it you know, as a kid uh, through college and law school. And it was something I knew I always wanted to do. I I mean, I was really just in a lucky place when the Human Rights Council, which is the central human rights body of the UN, about six years ago appointed me to actually monitor freedom of expression around the world. They do that for all sorts of areas of human rights, Mm -hmm. and I put in for it, and there's kind of a black box as to how those appointments get made. Mm -hmm. But I was appointed to do that. So for the last six years, I focused on— I mean, I'm most interested in those kinds of threats to freedom of expression, you know, attacks on journalists and others that are almost like canaries in the coal mine for Mm -hmm. mass atrocities, authoritarianism— and when I started five or six years ago, you could see the beginning of the things that you've been writing about for years. Disinformation on the platforms, attacks on journalists, kind of mob attacks, especially misogynistic ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just—first of all, that's a very interesting area for me, mm-hmm. you know, how governments are manipulating private actors to do this. But also, um, it was interesting to me from the perspective of what does this pretend about the future and right. where we're all going. Right. I mean, I didn't predict— kind of the populism of the moment, certainly not Trump. Mm-hmm. But but I saw what was what was happening with the increasing to, repression. To in.
2: yeah. Now when you're when you're making the links between sort of traditional suppression of information and what's happening now, um the old ways of book burnings, um keeping people in line, arresting mm-hmm. people for doing things, suing them. Now that's the latest one, is the suit lawsuits yeah. that are going on everywhere. Mm-hmm. Is it different with digital or just moves to a different uh, battlefield essentially?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally it's the same thing. It's a new battlefield. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, governments forever, you know, leaders forever have always tried to suppress the kind of information that people share. Mm -hmm. It's in some ways easier now, right? (laughs) Because if we think about even um, pre-social media, Mm -hmm. it's easier now compared to then. So in the past when it was a kind of a flat, non-hierarchical, non non Concentrated network of networks. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really hard. It was kind of whack-a-mole for governments
2: to figure out right. like, where who's do got, they go. Who's got the the mimeograph machine? Who's it- got the. The book that gets out exactly,
3: yeah. Even pre-digital, mm-hmm. right? The idea of samizdat, mm-hmm. you know, right?
2: The explain m- that draft. for people who do not Yeah, know. so in the Soviet Union, you know, my my area of expertise at Georgia University at the Foreign Service School was propaganda. So please explain. Oh, so this is your yes, world. Yes, this is we're why I'm so back, focused. Kara. This is why I'm so focused on this.
3: Yeah, you? I mean, um, so in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't as if there were, you know, mass. Uh, there was mass publishing, mm-hmm. there would be, you know, one document or one book, like mm-hmm. Solzhenitsyn's Solzhenitsyn. Gulag, Gulag Archipelago or something like that, and there'd be one copy of it, uh, and it would travel around mm-hmm. by by hand among activists, among people, and it was known as Samizdat, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, back then it was for, for the Soviets or for any actor to just find that particular document and destroy it, that would be one way of ending you know, sort of the information mm-hmm. flow. If you fast forward maybe 20 or 30 years to digital age, but pre-social media, mm-hmm. I mean, it was the blogosphere. It was, right. You know, people would share, but, you know, governments could target particular blogs or particular mm-hmm. outlets, mm-hmm. but they'd be moving all the time. Right. Now, all of that's on social media. So, you know, rather than having to go and find your your blog or this or that, you just go to social media and you say, look, you can't carry this kind of content. It's become a lot easier. Mm -hmm. The fundamentals of it aren't any different. Governments want to restrict information Mm -hmm. or they want to um, they want to flood the zone with disinformation to crowd out the verifiable. More so that.
2: That's what's what's happening in the Philippines and everywhere else.
3: Exactly. And that's I mean, I think that's where they have the tools that hmm. they did, didn't quite have in the past.
2: Right, that they create noise and anger and different a different narrative, a different narrative yeah. which is going on. Yeah, exactly. Which is super interesting. I mean, I was just watching—just in my mind, I was watching a Fox News panel where they were talking about Nancy Pelosi ripping—they were obsessed with this ripping up of the thing, and I was like— he didn't shake her hand, and he just said, son of a bitch, in the, in the East Room. Like, what? Like, And mm-hmm. she's saying he was classless, and I was like, why aren't you reporting? It was really interesting, and I thought, oh, what interesting propaganda to, like, just focus on one thing, even though something's going on over here and ignore it, and it was, it was riveting, and I thought, this is really effective. Yeah. It was really an effective use of cable in this case.
3: I think it is effective. Yeah. Actually, and one of the things that— like I try in my own work to avoid, mm-hmm. is blaming it all on digital. Right. Because um, obviously, you know, Fox News as state media mm-hmm. basically has a big role in this. And right. It plays off with digital. Well, they play
2: together. That's what happens. Completely. It goes in a big
3: circle. Completely. But it's not, you know, as bad as, say, disinformation on Facebook is.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It gets a big boost from... What's happening in in the mass media right, as well? Right,
2: absolutely. All right. So you were doing this, and you, when you report to the UN, where does it go? What is you just say this is happening here, this is happening here? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about sort of the hotspots of where the most trouble is, and and what happens to the information that you report to the UN?
3: Yeah. So we do a few different kinds of things. So first, just in the UN, the UN world. Yeah. Uh, so I directly report to the Human Rights Council, and so twice a year to the Human Rights Council, and to the General Assembly, I provide a a thematic report. Mm -hmm. I have kind of complete freedom to decide what I want to report on. Mm -hmm. Um, Over the years, I've reported—the first report I did was on encryption Mm -hmm. and anonymity and how digital security is essential to protecting human rights Mm -hmm. around the world. And we actually have done—over the years, played a—I don't know if I would say significant, but we've— tried to play a role in the debates around encryption mm-hmm. to remind people that digital security is also about um, it's protection. also about human rights and protection. Mm-hmm. So we do those kinds of thematic reporting and then I communicate directly with governments. So we send letters, they're almost like demand letters mm-hmm. directly to governments. So say they've detained a journalist. Mm-hmm. We'll send them a letter and it's I don't have any police force with me. Right. But you know it's a signal to them that somebody's watching and all of those communications Even though initially they are confidential, we ultimately uh, publish them all. Oftentimes we do press releases on those. So like yesterday we did a press release on um, the criminal complaint against Glenn Greenwald.
2: Mm -hmm, Which is explain what's going on so people who don't know in Brazil.
3: Yeah, so in Brazil, Glenn Greenwald is, um, you know, he's become quite, like we know him in the United States as active. But he lives there and he reports on Brazil. Like he's an active Player in Brazilian journalism, Mm -hmm. and he reported on uh, basically some material that was disclosed to him that identified um, kind of a conspiracy against the past president Mm -hmm. um, uh, Lulu, and and now the current president, you know, clearly doesn't like that. The current administration doesn't like that kind of disclosure. And uh, there's been a criminal complaint lodged against. Meaning uh, he was Greenwald. a journalist who
2: accepted information, yeah. whistleblower information, essentially, and yeah. is using it, which is very common. I've used it. Lots of lots of people get memos, internal memos, not quite exactly s- disturbing as that one. Um, and you use them, and you never get dinged by the company or anything else. You just never do. And in this case, they just didn't want it out. And so they're trying to blame not just the person who disclosed it, which they're within their purview to do so, Mm -hmm. um, just like they did with uh, Edward Snowden and Mm -hmm. others. But in this case, they're targeting the journalist.
3: Yeah. And and the parallels to Snowden... Um, I mean, not exactly. It would have been like
2: arresting the Washington Post. It would have been like,
3: exactly. So, or Bart Gellman gets arrested for, for reporting on it. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. Or Glenn, yeah. again. Glenn. But, but you know, um, the problem with these kinds... There's many, many problems with these kinds of laws. I mean, they're mm-hmm. there's, they're designed to limit the flow of information. Mm-hmm. But they also don't give uh, either the whistleblower or the journalist the opportunity to make an argument about public interest. Mm-hmm. So, like, Ed Snowden makes the, the point that... When he's prosecuted under the Espionage Act, he doesn't have he the opportunity say, yeah. to show, look, law changed because of these disclosures. you got to give me some credit for that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so we, we do that kind of work mm-hmm. in raising these issues publicly and with the governments. Um, and then we, we also do country visits. Mm-hmm. So I've gone to places like Turkey, Tajikistan, Mexico, Ecuador, uh, I just went to Ethiopia in December, and we do these kind of concentrated um, investigations, fact-finding in a particular country and say, here's where you're doing fine. We like to see this, particularly in transitional countries. We say, look, here's where you need to be doing some more work to improve freedom of expression in mm-hmm. your country.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you look at the, the whole global, look at globally, where are the real problems from your perspective right now? Yeah. I'm just, you know, recalling what's going on in China today around this doctor who tried mm-hmm. to essentially say there's a virus here, and he died of the virus, and was actually quite uh, uh, maligned by the government bef- while he was doing it.
3: Yeah, completely. I yeah, mean, that's, arrested,
2: detained, detained. Yes.
3: Right? Was he? Was he? Something. Just, he right detained, there. but he was clearly right. pressured simply for identifying a yes. medical emergency. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I mean, I think it's—first of all, it's easy to say there are certain trends, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I would distinguish different parts of the world. So China, for example, is, um, you know, on the digital side—first of all, it's complicated. You know, there's kind of a rich social media, but Mm -hmm. also a censored one, Mm -hmm. one that is both a subject to limitation, but also subject to the the kind of flooding the zone that Mm -hmm. we were talking about before— I mean, China's at one end of the spectrum, right? The me- There is a media, uh, and actually there's been some interesting reporting over the last few days mm-hmm. about how the media has really taken on the coronavirus in some interesting ways in the country, which mm-hmm. is complicating for the government. But by and large, it's a closed media environment. And that's a trend that we see, I mean, that kind of activity, that kind of repression, we see in a lot of different places. But there's a separate trend in democratic societies, which is... I think especially troubling. I mean, obviously we see it in the United States mm-hmm. with disinformation like we're talking about before. I mean, the disinformation of the Trump administration, which I think many Americans see as, you know, public lying mm-hmm. is is a it's consistent with what we're seeing in places in Europe. We've seen mm-hmm. it in, in Hungary, in Poland, in several other places. We see it in the context of Brexit. Um, the kind of public lying in order to shape the kind of information and the kind of decisions that voters are able to make. Mm-hmm. I mean that's really troubling. There's issues around the, on uh, digital. So we see mass surveillance and targeted surveillance. You know, so there's distinctions between the mass surveillance in in the United States and and its allies, who you know, in inf- intelligence sharing, uh, compared to say Saudi Arabia with. Both mass surveillance, but also this targeted surveillance of the kind that that we could talk about around. Mm-hmm. You know, Bezos is really just a right. We're going to get to that in the next I mean, section. there's much. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's oh, they're real doing it to surveillance to everybody. Exactly of, against the government. Yes, of of real, you know, of dissidents around mm-hmm. the world. So, so there's all sorts of trends taking place, but I think the overall trend is pretty grim. Mm-hmm. And the trend is, you know, on the one hand. Um, fighting back by governments against legitimate journalism. So there's criticism. So criticism of of the government is converted into a crime. Mm -hmm. It's converted or redefined as terrorism. Uh, We see increasing use of digital space. So there have been a lot of laws over the last several years that are framed as cybersecurity laws, but they're actually laws about limiting what you can do online, what you can say, what you can post, what you can like. And those—I mean, those kinds of threats are, are very real, and they go well beyond maybe the the traditional approach of just targeting journalists. I mean, that targets that imagines that everybody, in a way, is a journalist. Mm-hmm. Everybody in a sharing economy is, is, it, is, is reporting. Is, is reporting, right? So, you know, governments are onto that. I mean, it's it's a dark time on the digital side for for people who want to share information and learn about. Learn about things. all sorts of things. All right.
2: This is grim. Grim and dark. Okay. This is mm-hmm. perfect, David. Um, we're here with David Kay, the special reporter for freedom of opinion and expression at the UN. He's the author of Speech Police, which we're also going to talk about. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this to talk about his involvement with the Bezos phone hack.
0: Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial.
1: If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair too. Fairness isn't a new idea. But it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: We're here with David Kay. He is a, an author, and he also works for the UN around f- uh, freedom of expression and opinion. And he is also a professor, um, a law professor. Uh, David, we were just talking about the idea of it being grim. Let's walk us through your involvement in the Bezos thing, because even though it was such a bizarre thing, but it, it sort of it, it encapsulates what's going on. The world's richest man was hacked— by another rich man mm-hmm. um, who was actually targeting him because he owns the Washington Post and all kinds of things. Talk a little bit of what happened here, how you all got involved.
3: Yeah, so I think, I mean, a lot of people know about uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. And, um, Journalist,
2: for the, wrote for the Washington Post.
3: Exactly, yeah. A
2: dissident, not not the worst dissident in Saudi Arabia, not the most active, but he was very... Uh, outspoken about the Saudi government.
3: Exactly. I mean, Jamal in the past was actually a friend of the House That's of right. Saud. Very much, um, you know, believed in it as, you know, a stable force in Saudi Arabia and so forth. It was so fair
2: forth. criticism he was doing of the country.
3: Totally fair criticism. He, um, I mean, in his re- his reporting, he was becoming more and more critical. He
2: was indeed. Right.
3: So in the year before um, he was he was murdered, his. Um, You know his columns took a pretty rough turn against against us, and in particular against the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and the behaviors
2: that were happening. I don't mean to say he wasn't the worst dissident. He wasn't the most way out dissident. He was very trying to change the society with criticism, with very criticism.
3: He wasn't a radical, right? Exactly. He wasn't a flamethrower by any means. Mm So after his murder, both Agnes Calamard, who's the special rapporteur on extrajudicial killings, Mm -hmm. um, both she and I had gotten involved in, you know, at first we were urging the UN, basically the secretary general, to launch a commission of inquiry or at least appoint a group of experts Mm -hmm. to investigate how it was and who was responsible for murdering Jamal Khashoggi in the Turkish, um, in you know, in the, in the Turkish Saudi city of Istanbul, in right. the Saudi consulate, right. which is, you know, makes it an unusual set of circumstances. It's right. not our normal, you know, mm-hmm. killing of a journalist. So, and, and then Agnes went on to do her own specific investigation of the killing, and, and her conclusion was, you know, basically— The crown prince was behind it. As was all
2: our own intelligence officials, everybody. Exactly. Right.
3: So, okay, so that's on one track. Um, And as part of her investigation, she saw that there was considerable surveillance of people around Jamal Khashoggi. So Mm -hmm. dissidents— um, activists, journalists mm-hmm. who were associated with him, and it was clear that they had been. And Citizen Lab, a an organization based at the University of Toronto that does a lot of amazing forensic work and advocacy, it had identified the well. There's this Israeli company that makes this malware, this spyware called Pegasus,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, that is a a tool for really invasive, intrusive surveillance
2: uh, via phones.
3: Via phones, mm-hmm. exactly. Okay, so that's happening on one track. On the on another track, I did a lot of work on the private surveillance industry more generally. I mean, it's an industry that basically operates without constraint. Mm-hmm. So NSO Group is just one instance. There's Hacking Team, there's Gamma Group, FinFisher, there's—it's there's, actually probably— uh, we only see the tip of the iceberg, right? It's and they're Im- being
2: hired across the globe. You've read about them in in book, in like sci- in books, you know, spy thrillers. But exactly. they're private companies that are hired to do surveillance by governments or individuals or co- companies or things like that. And there's been a yeah. huge growth them using digital means.
3: Completely. And there's a legitimacy to it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a legitimacy to saying, you know, in the in the context of fighting against terrorism mm-hmm. or violent crime or. Right. Um, you know, uh, child abuse and kidnapping, there's a completely legitimate use as long as it's constrained by rule of law, meaning, you know, warrants, judicial warrants for the use of those tools. There's a legitimate place for these and actually a a pretty important one. The problem is that these tools are abused around the world against journalists, against activists and human rights defenders and dissidents. So, So I did a report last year that focused on the on the industry, and I basically called for a moratorium on the transfer of this technology, at least until there's a legal framework around its mm-hmm. transfer and constraint on its use. So, you know, basically that put on yes, and I, it gave us some profile on these kinds of issues, mm-hmm. and so we were uh, we were basically handed uh, this forensic report that looked at um, this allegation that Jeff Bezos had, had been of Amazon head of Amazon, had been hacked, not not just by Saudi Arabia, because that had been out there. His chief of security had made this allegation about a year ago, I think in, mm-hmm. in February or March last year, um, but actually tied it directly to interactions with uh, the crown prince, with mm-hmm. MBS himself.
2: All right, so lay this out, how this happened. This was a report that Ga- Gavin... Um I'm sorry, his last name. Gavin DeBecker. DeBecker, who Mm -hmm. worked as a security head for Jeff Bezos. You'd imagine the World's Rich Man has security around him. For sure. um, And you'd imagine he would be safe because he's the World's Rich Man. But indeed, that is not the case. Yeah. Um, And there's all kinds of points of uh, vulnerability. There's a lawsuit right now from his brother-in-law, who seems to have taken his pictures and given them to the National Enquirer from what he it looks like that's yeah. what happened. That's what the mm-hmm. National Enquirer said happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what Jeff Bezos thinks. Um, and his sister also thinks that, who, who's dating Jeff Bezos. Um, but th- that, that's a weird point of vulnerability. That's a strange yeah. little side note. But this yeah. is a real—this is someone who was texting using WhatsApp. Is that correct? Yeah.
3: So what happened was—it's funny um, you say WhatsApp and my WhatsApp goes <laughs> off. <often, laughs> you have this magic I never ability. use WhatsApp. It's owned by so, Facebook. So— um, so basically, what happened was, people might remember that MBS did this national tour. He came to the United States. He, he spent did. like three weeks.
2: He was in Silicon Valley quite a bit.
3: Exactly, he went to the Valley. There's pictures of him with, I think, with Sergey. Sergey. Ren and so he comes to Los Angeles. I was
2: invited to something. I'm like, no way, I'm going there.
3: Yeah. Well, no you know, way you could have had this. Uh, you could have been a part of this story. No, thank correct? you. Yeah.
2: I was. These people were just anyway. They're sons. well. He
3: met with. He did meet with. You know, apart from you, he met with everybody. Oh, he wasn't it gonna meet with like... me. It
2: was just some event, some event that he yeah.
3: Was... Right. Well, and you might not have done what Jeff Bezos did, which was they were at a dinner mm-hmm. and they exchanged numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, and MBS and and Bezos, they're like, here, let's we, we talk, can be in touch. Yeah, and which and, is know, what,
2: by the way, just so I'm gonna take a moment. Rich people do this all the time. They yeah. like get they get together at these dinners, and it's like I was at one with Jeff Bezos and Rupert Murdoch, and you know, all of them back in the day, and they all just. They socialize. They socialize in this weird. It's always mm. strange and weird, but they do that. And they do. They they like to contact each other. Yeah, you know, It via, makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Yeah, if I, I need mean, to talk to you about Saudi Arabia. We might start a Amazon thing. Yeah, just to share, share. and care. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. whatever. You know, billionaires
3: House. have problems too. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. Know, who else are they going to talk to? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so they share numbers and um, and they actually you know do a quick hey it's it's Bezos hey it's MBS kind of thing. Mm. So um, what happens is about a month later, and I can't say that MBS himself sent this. What we know is that a video was sent from the account of MBS Mm -hmm. to Bezos. And this forensic report shows how within hours of the sending of this video, there's this massive spike in exfiltration, the taking out of data mm-hmm. from the phone to some unknown location. Mm-hmm. I mean, I should emphasize the report that we got was interim. It's not a conclusive report. It mm-hmm. basically says we have medium to high confidence that it was this vector, the use of this video— the single
2: video, yeah. —that
3: infected Jeff Bezos's phone— and, and what they show in this forensic analysis is there was a baseline of very little data coming out of uh, of Bezos' phone mm-hmm. over time, historically. Right. And then suddenly it spiked up like 29,000%. Mm-hmm. And and you would see these spikes over the course of a couple of months, um, or actually over the course of a year, leading to one spike that was like four gigabytes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bezos didn't use— iCloud to back up. So there wasn't really another explanation for this other than it being a hack mm-hmm. and the taking of information. So from our perspective— And this was his
2: personal phone. This, this is,
3: is his personal phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if he used other phones or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of these you mm-hmm. know, people have many, many phones. Right. But this was his personal phone. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, from from our perspective, what we do in the UN, when we get information like that— we first—we communicate with the government, mm-hmm. and which is what we did. We sent a letter to the Saudis mm-hmm. and said, We're, um, we've received this information. Uh, if it's true, this raises really grave concerns about freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, we laid out, you know, the relationship between Bezos and The Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi, the connections between, um, you know, this particular hack or allegation of a hack— and the hacks that have been alleged about the people around Khashoggi.
2: Right. So, um, And Jeff Bezos around Khashoggi. Just for those who don't know, yeah. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. And there's been a lot of noise because it's been—Trump like, has attacked it. Uh, Trump is very exactly. close to MBS. So it's alleged that they're trying to get at Jeff Bezos in some fashion because yeah. they're angry about um, his— his paper, his ownership of the paper.
3: Yeah, no, exactly. And that's—so from our perspective, like, we're not saying to either the Saudis or to the public— so we did a public statement about this. Mm -hmm. We're not saying this is conclusive evidence, but there is enough here, one, that the Saudis have some questions to answer, and Mm -hmm. it certainly looks like they targeted Bezos. And in light of the—kind of the entirety of the relationship between Bezos and the Post, the Post and Jamal Khashoggi, the allegations and demonstration of other hacking— we need information, but also it's the kind of set of allegations that we regularly go public with because mm-hmm. people need to know about the risks. Mm-hmm. Now, it may ultimately be that there's some other explanation. I doubt it. When you look at the report and you look at the timeline, mm-hmm. it's hard to imagine any other explanation. But we're we're human rights fact finders. We're open to receiving other information. Mm-hmm. But so, but it's it's really concerning.
2: Absolutely. So explain to me why why this is important. I mean, it's it's such a bizarre stream of events. But I think here's the world's richest man being targeted and successfully uh, at some point whatever they pulled out from the phone. Yeah. Um, also, that everybody's vul- vulnerable and and he has probably the most would assume would have, I don't necessarily assume he has the best security, but he should for sure. Mm-hmm. And that this is, it's as easy as putting a video. Now, what I understand is he didn't even have to watch the video, correct? Did he click on it? He did not.
3: I. You know, the report doesn't make that yeah, part clear, right. but it was a no-click
2: intrusion. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So it just has to be sent. Yeah, exactly. So explain how that works.
3: Okay, so actually there's a separate track here, mm-hmm. uh, which is, WhatsApp was vulnerable to exactly this kind of... It was basically
2: WhatsApp and iOS. This is iOS. owned by Facebook. Let's yeah. add another wrinkle to it. Right, WhatsApp. right.
3: So here's our WhatsApp Facebook link, but there's also an iOS link. I mean, mm-hmm. basically the vulnerability here, which was that you didn't even have to answer your phone. You didn't even have to click on the video in order for it to um, for it to infect your phone. Mm-hmm. So again, I mean, that's not just WhatsApp. It's also Everything. a device security problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and And actually, since the time of the the Bezos hack, WhatsApp and Facebook uh, have sued the NSO group, mm-hmm. uh, this surveillance company in Israel, for doing exactly this for creating this software that targets the platform in order to mm-hmm. create these kinds of intrusions. Mm-hmm. So, um I mean, I can't really explain the technical side of how right. this happened. but But basically, that's how um you know, this video would infect this phone. And I think, I mean, your point is exactly right. So it's Bezos. You know, he's a rich guy. I mean, the richest guy. Nobody needs to be crying crocodile tears over him in part- because of him. Mm-hmm. But it, he owned the Washington Post. He owns. And the, he owns the Washington Post. And the suggestion that anybody, even somebody at his level, could be subject to this kind of intrusion— mm-hmm. I think is is really shocking. shocking. It's really disturbing. And I, I mean, I see the private surveillance industry generally, even if, and this is the thing, this isn't necessarily that your average, you know, iPhone user cares that much about for their own, but this is about the fundamental pillars of our democratic life. And if governments are able to target owners of the media or journalists mm-hmm. or activists that that is a direct threat to the way you know we get information the way we share information and and really to the some democratic fundamentals for us so mm-hmm. it's not that i'm concerned about bezos per se i'm concerned about the whole Package of things. I'm that concerned are shown about by Bezos.
2: If they can get him, they can get everybody. Everybody gets caught yeah. essentially. There's no protection for anybody, especially dissidents who are incredibly vulnerable in terms of being trackable, in terms of being uh, able to find out. And one of the things <laughs> that we'll never find out about Jamil Khashoggi is how much tracking they did of him in order to get him there. Yeah. Um, which is which is interesting. And then you start to think about where you can travel, where you can, uh, even if you're even making comments. I mean, when I make comments about the Saudis being Thugs and they Silicon should Valley like, shouldn't take money. I'm like, I'm not going to Saudi Arabia. There's mm-hmm. no way I'm going to Saudi. You know what I mean? I'm not yeah. going to show up in places I'm invited. You know, and I'm like nobody. Like, you know what I mean? You just think about the, you know I- I- the ability to make valid criticisms about uh, you know uh, uh, autocratic regimes completely makes it, it chills. It's a chilling thing, which I think is, and, is disturbing I, to a lot of people.
3: Totally agree. And on top of this, I think what's just really outrageous is how so many people, so many governments, mm-hmm. and so many companies continue to engage with the Saudis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Saudis hosted a cybersecurity event just this week. Mm-hmm. They host this, you know, Davos in the Desert yes. every year, yeah. and this, which is actually something that Bezos, uh, after the Khashoggi murder, he decided he wasn't going to go to. It wasn't a mm-hmm. public thing, yeah. right. but that really ticked off. MBS. Yes.
2: So, a lot of people didn't go for one year, and then they all came back. Now, I'm guessing Bezos isn't coming back. No, but, he's not going back. Yeah. yeah. But,
3: but this is the problem, is yeah. that, you know, these things happen, and what's the reaction? So, I'm just, you know, a U.N. reporter, basically, right. on these things. But governments keep going. Governments keep um, I mean, they continue to fail to regulate this industry. Mm-hmm. and um and they continue to let basically to let MBS be treated as if he's just another member of, you know, the you know, the ruling class of the world. right. And that's to me, that's really disturbing. Obviously, it connects back to something you were alluding mm-hmm. to earlier, which is, you know, the connections between Trump and the Trump administration and and the Saudis. But, you know, frankly, you know, Democratic and Republican governments 100%. have always Silicon been Silicon Valley. This, yeah. Silicon
2: Valley takes yeah. so much money. I mean, through the Vision Front for SoftBank, Completely. they're taking this money and they're, and they're willingly doing it without hearing without it. We're going to get back to what we do about this. When we get back, we're here with David Kay. He's the special reporter for Freedom of Opinion at the UN and the author of Speech Police. We're going to talk about that in a second when we get back.
1: Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: We're here with David Kay. He's the special reporter for Freedom Opinion and Expression at the UN. He's the author of Speech Police. So this sort of paints a pretty ugly picture of these companies sort of operating freely all over the globe being hired by governments and, and the vulnerability of these phones, which everybody uses. Let's talk a little bit about what we do about it. Is mm-hmm. there anything, given that you carry these things around? Now, I have shut down every single thing on this phone that could possibly be tracked. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this has been has is yeah. easily hacked, what I'm carrying. It, yeah. You know, I have no question that it's easily hacked, and there's nothing I can do about it. Is there something average citizens and people who are more high journalists or, you know, people who are pushing back like Bezos yeah. um, can do? So, so I mean, put it in, like, a plastic bag and, like, a right, silver exactly. bag and...
3: I mean, look, at the end of the day, the problem, in part, is that we're all connected to other people. And Mm -hmm. so we rely on everybody's security around us. Mm -hmm. So, And this was one of the Jamal Khashoggi issues. I Mm -hmm. mean, in part, I think what we think is that Mm -hmm. he was tracked, in part, by— the um, intrusion into the people around him, not necessarily him.
2: Right, right, if you're with someone else. So what,
3: um, but also just who you're texting with and what you're saying to, so you, like, your device might be secure, but you don't know about the people that you're connected with. You know, I was
2: was thinking about this when I turned off all my mapping. I've turned it off all the time, and Mm. I only allow it to go on for a second or something like that. Although me searching tells them where I am, but it doesn't quite tell them where I actually am. Um, But then I was like, My girlfriend's is still on, so I'm usually with her. So I was like, turn yours off. She's like, I don't want to. I'm like, no, you have to because then they can track me. And so you become this sort of strange, like, paranoid person. You do. And,
3: I mean, the problem of this for me is that, you know, this system, this world and protection relies on our own individual initiative, Mm -hmm. which is hard because, you know, these phones, tablets, computers, there's so much convenience and also— um, yeah. you know, uh, Julianne Gwynn wrote this book, Dragnet Nation, a few years <laughs> sure ago. Sure, she did. You know, she tried to go off the grid. It's almost impossible. impossible. And so, so I think um, there are some things we can do. I mean, journalists, all journalists should know how to use things like Signal, which is, you know, very secure um, messaging. They should know how to use... Um, Things like Tor in mm-hmm. order to do anonymized searches, mm-hmm. um, SecureDrop. I mean, there's a range of things that people need to do in the profession in order to protect their sources. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's—well, you would know better than I do, but my impression is that that isn't widely adopted enough. It is, and I use
2: them, but yes, but they're not—people don't do them at all. People no. don't do them enough. No. And, so, and then they use WhatsApp, which I, I, you, I see using it. I don't use it. It's from Facebook. I don't—I'm sorry. I just don't. I know it's encrypted. I just yeah. don't. I don't care.
3: No. The, so the thing f- for WhatsApp is um, pretty much everybody I work with outside the United States uses it. So right. It becomes a kind yes, of
2: yes. a crutch. I mean, right. I I tend to. I, I don't. I'm mind. not alleging that Facebook is s- lying on you. I just. Yeah. I don't know. I just yeah. don't even want to guess. I don't want to take the risk. It yeah. No. Crazy. I
3: totally understand that. Right. But so. There are other things. So I actually think there should be a kind of movement. Mm-hmm. People have been talking about this for years, but there should be a movement of, you know, encryption and the use of encrypted technologies mm-hmm. generally. I think some of the companies, I mean, Apple has moved into this space in a pretty productive way, mm-hmm. at least domestically. I wouldn't say that they're the best actor when it comes to dealing with China. Right. Um, so it's kind of market specific in a way, but the more people who use these kinds of tools, mm-hmm. the more there's a generic or a generalized security for everybody. We'll talk everybody. about
2: Apple and what's happened recently around mm-hmm. encryption, since encryption was an area that, mm-hmm. that you that is important. Um, Apple just. Um, resisted a government inquiry into opening up an iPhone. It's around encryption. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it gave a lot of information up of this, from iCloud, the stuff that was demanded by Warrant, yeah. um, which it does, which mm-hmm. it always does. You're right. They, it's quite, sort of a, a mixed bag with Apple because they are defending encryption and did previously yeah. with the Obama administration at the same time these companies can't resist for too long, essentially, mm-hmm. if they want other things. They ha- there's a lot of pressure to bear on them.
3: Yeah, it's true. I mean, luckily, I mean, after the Snowden revelations, really, mm-hmm. there was a, a sense of common cause among many of the companies. And, yeah, the companies. And, you know, companies. in the few years after 2013— kind of the, the mass move to HTTPS mm-hmm. on websites was also amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. there,
2: there are a lot of good this things. This is a, protect, a more protected—explain what it is. Well,
3: H, as compared to HTTP, mm-hmm. it's just a protocol that is secure. It's an mm-hmm. encrypted connection with mm-hmm. your website. I mean, the metadata is is visible. In other words, um, the fact that I'm, seeking, I'm going to the New York Times website mm-hmm. is known, but what I'm actually looking at at the Times right. site is not. Right. So— um, so that—I mean, there are some good things. I don't want to paint a totally grim picture. I mm-hmm. mean, some of the companies, particularly on the device side, I think have moved to um, to a kind of a privacy, uh, maybe a, a centerpiece of their yes. business model. Right. That's really good. And, mm-hmm. and it's not just privacy for privacy's sake. It's privacy for all of our communications, for— you know, for journalists, for activists, and just for you and I, or like mm-hmm. me to contact my spouse or you mm-hmm. yours, and you know that that part is really that's that's a good sign, and it's a defense against at least kind of low hanging fruit right. surveillance,
2: right? Absolutely.
3: So that's a that's a good thing, but but generally speaking, you know, I mean, we're talking about, or at least we've been talking about surveillance at this targeted level. But, you know, at the end of the day, the companies are all collecting huge amounts of that's information right. about us. And are we really certain that governments aren't going to get access to that information? I'm certain they will. Yeah. So that's a big threat. I mean, it's a threat enough that the companies have that access to us, mm-hmm. which, you know, in the United States, we haven't regulated at all. Right. I mean, I actually do think Europe will regulate, and that's going to affect us. I mean, Absolutely. GDPR is already having that effect the, the um, general data protection regulation in, in the European Union. But um, but generally speaking, we're living in a surveillance society. We're Absolutely. all surveilled. And I don't think we have any, particularly when you think about this government today, the Trump administration, would they resist using these tools in order to get no. at their enemies? None no. of them would.
2: Let me just say they would be more right. apparent about it. They'd be more explicit about it.
3: Completely. Because they
2: do everything out in the open. Yeah. All their corruption is True. in it, it was. I was talking to an investigative reporter yesterday, Carol Lenig, who wrote, Lienig, who wrote the book on Trump. And I said, "What's it like to be an investigative reporter when they do their crimes out in the open? Like mm-hmm. you don't even have to dig." Like she's like, "I yeah. know. Hey, it's weird. It's just right there. The pile yeah. of crap is just right there, essentially." Yeah. But um, no, no, no. Governments. I think every government constantly overreaches all the time, and if they can yeah. get access to information, there's no government that doesn't do this. That's um, true. It, there just isn't. Like and as I much as we a, pretend and romanticize our previous I government. Agree. Right. They don't. They I agree. surveil.
3: Well, and I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, the last—I mean, the Obama administration the was really fighting on and fighting on encryption. Right, they were. You know, fighting on I this, had a long this very basic tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I
2: mean— Well, he was pro-encryption until he was anti-encryption. That's what my argument with him was, you know, and he was. I, I get that you see certain things and you see the world, and it's an ugly place when you get much more information. Yeah. But it, 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 it wasn't an excuse. I was like, you changed. So just say you changed, like, and explain to me why that was. And I, mean, I think,
3: I think that. That's right. And I think governments all, I mean, or we should say maybe like politicians Mm -hmm. who come in with this rosy view, like we're going to protect this and that, Mm -hmm. and then they get in. I mean, it's a Washington problem, too. Mm -hmm. It's like you get into this security environment and you're convinced about the darkness of the world, Mm -hmm. but but it's a narrow way of thinking about security.
2: Right. Absolutely. Because
3: all of our security is at risk, and not just at risk from you know, the prying eyes of our neighbors, but mm-hmm. from criminals. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a real—an insecure internet is terrible for everybody. Absolutely. So, you know,
2: certain people like Ash Carter and others did believe in it because yeah. he understands the importance of, of that. Exactly. What's interesting to me is is what—so who protects us? Are these companies? Because we're being protected by companies, which I think—you know, I had an argument with one of the founders of Google about that, and I was very tough on them about having control of all search, and I said, this is an enormous amount of data you have on people you understand. And you're responsible for that in in the hands of the wrong people and he, and he I forget which one it was. He goes, I'm a nice person. And I said, yeah, but what, what happens when a nice—not such a nice person gets their hands on this? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's not going to happen. I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, if you you understand the history of the world, nice and not nice people get their hands on stuff like this all the time. And so what, what do we do in this situation? Because the government's interests are in collecting more information. The company's interests are in collecting more information. And MBS, whatever the hell he's up to out in Saudi Arabia, he definitely wants to collect and then mm-hmm. suppress— what do you do in this environment? How do you resist that? What are the ways people can do that? I, I
3: mean, at the end of the day, the tool is law. You know, it's law and regulation. Mm-hmm. And um, and we have very little of it. I mean, there, there was— We have none. We have no—I mean, there was this—a slight move— after the Snowden revelations to deal with some of the, the worst abuses. Yes, yes. But but you're right. There's no regulation, and it's—I mean, it's a particularly American problem. You mm-hmm. know, we think that the companies will self-regulate, and that's the way the market will fix this, mm-hmm. but we're not in an environment of, of a competitive market. Mm-hmm. So there's no competition to Google. I mean, as much as we like—like, like I use DuckDuckGo every mm-hmm. so often because it doesn't collect information mm-hmm. on my searches, but— you know everybody's using google
2: it's not behavioral it's it's uh, it's contextual but go ahead yeah Sorry.
3: yeah right right exactly so so i think i mean we need law we need regulation we need a, a change in the way we think in the united states about the power of regulation <laughs> it, you know Ever since the 80s, we've had this, you know, anything the government does to regulate is evil. And, and it hurts and, innovation. And it hurts innovation and all that. But I don't think we're in that space anymore. So
2: what do we need? Talk about, let's finish up talking about what we, what are the, and what are the low-hanging fruit people can do to, to protect themselves? Yeah. Um, because it really is a protect yourself kind mm-hmm. of situation. Like, you're not, you're you are on your own in yeah. a lot of ways.
3: I mean, part of the problem with say, giving a generic answer is, mm-hmm. you know, different people have different, like, threat perceptions and, and actual threats against them. Like some people, they're happy to share everything. And that's, for them, that's fine. I Mm -hmm. mean, they should recognize the risks, there Mm -hmm. needs to be much more education about the risks of sharing. And the risk, I mean, and by sharing, I mean, just keeping on your phone location data, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, there is a risk inherent in that. Mm -hmm. If you understand it, and you still make the choice Fine.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the excuse of I've got nothing to hide. Yeah. Exactly. We did an interesting thing at the New York Times. We this guy's like I've got nothing to hide, and then we tracked his face everywhere, and he's like, "What?" And yeah. I was like, oh, we well, can track your face everywhere.
3: Well, facial recognition, yeah. I think, will will really freak people out, mm-hmm. and that is an important part of it. I mean, we get, you know, the the data showing the hundreds, if not thousands, of pictures that are taken mm-hmm. of us every day. Yeah. Um, you know that that should be really concerning to people, but that also highlights how massive a problem this is. Mm-hmm. This isn't just a problem of our devices; mm-hmm. it's a problem of public space and public and cameras. We have no, and public cameras, and we have no, we have no regulatory. There's no overarching approach that says privacy is essential to a democratic society, mm-hmm. as it should be in the United States, as Europe has has been recognizing for several years. And we need to constrain the companies and their collection, and we need to constrain our government in its use of that data. Mm -hmm. We don't have anything like that, so we we really do need a massive movement on that. I mean, we're so—we're just in this moment where everything seems grim, from climate change, you know, to the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. to to social media, Mm -hmm. everything. But this has to be a central piece. It
2: really does. I'm I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get people— aware of it I keep calling them cheap dates that seems to get to them I'm like you you took a map and a you know uh, an ability to look up when someone died and you know some free email and they get billions and you're not a billionaire like they are like you're a cheap date you're essentially and they seem to people seem to be like oh maybe I am like
3: true they think it's free yeah people I mean and I'm not I'm not saying they like I feel like it's free every time I use this it's free but like in my day to day life I don't rethink. I mean, I'm I'm pretty safe on mm-hmm. my phone, but I still have to use things. Like if I have to go somewhere, I I, I don't think about it mm-hmm. as a cost. Right. But it's always a cost, and mm-hmm. people need to understand that.
2: All right. So what's next for you? What are you studying next? Let's finish up. What are you? What are? You, what is your next report on?
3: So I am actually coming to the end of my. We call it a mandate. Mm-hmm. So I'll be done in July.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I'm doing a report that looks at like a global look at trends, so the kinds of things we've been talking mm-hmm. about. And I'm doing two specific reports, one on artistic freedom of expression, mm-hmm. so basically how the digital age has interfered with, mm-hmm. um, but also advanced right. um, so artistic people can get freedom. It. People
2: can get seen more, and yeah. then at the same time they can get controlled more. It's not all a negative
3: story. No. And then the last report will be on academic freedom, Which so is- kind of the interaction between or the intersection of the digital and... You know, academic, we're actually still scoping out because academic freedom can mean a lot. It can mean campus speech and protest. It can mean the way in which, for example, if you're teaching, if you're a scholar of something in China or Turkey right now, that could you could lose your job just because of the nature of the thing that you're studying. Right. Um, so, you know, we're trying to figure out what exactly is the core issue for freedom of expression and academic freedom right now. But those are the two thematic areas. And then we're doing continuing to do work on on the private surveillance industry. I mean, mm-hmm. my big push there is we need law. Mm-hmm. You know, we need law at the local or national levels, but we especially need a global framework for that. To, to be for that.
2: monitoring these companies yeah. that are being hired by lots of different people. Yeah, exactly. Um, then I'd be remiss. I want to finish up the, the other day. <laughs> Recently, Mark Zuckerberg, I was at his speech, the paid versus free speech speech at Georgetown, and then he oh, did yeah. this. Um, I'm I'm all about free expression. Mm-hmm. How do you react to that? him wrapping himself in the cloak of free expression. You're someone who—this is an important issue. Yeah. I think you're committed to this idea. Completely.
3: I mean, I had a pretty negative reaction to his speech. Mm -hmm. This was the one— At Georgetown, when he was conflating
2: free speech with paid speech. But, you know, whatever. I I mean, I—so
3: there's some good things right now that are happening in social media space. Mm -hmm. I should start with the good. Mm -hmm. It's like a rhetorical. Mm -hmm. There's some good stuff happening. One of them is— I think th- my hope is that this this um, the Facebook move to this content moderation board, mm-hmm. which is not a bad idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, my is hope not. I
2: wrote that. Mm-hmm. I paid them one compliment this year about that. It's, it's not a bad idea, or but it could become a Potemkin village. That's my feeling.
3: This is the problem. So yeah. we're actually. I'm going to be monitoring that mm-hmm. over the next year. Mm-hmm. But I, I I my hope is that that is a kind of spur to cross industry regulation, and mm-hmm. if that you I could imagine several different uh, ways of doing that. I mean, one could be direct government regulation. Mm-hmm. That concerns me a bit mm-hmm. because government regulation of content historically is always yes. bad. It always leads to bad places. But what I do think we could have regulation around, and it may be that that what Facebook is doing might might convince people this is important is we can have regulation around transparency. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a lot more disclosure about and such so a Facebook. What they're collecting, how they make the decisions around content, who's making the decisions around content. Um, I mean, the companies control so much public speech, Mm -hmm. and they control the public square in so Mm -hmm. many places around the world. And yet people who are subject to that regulation know virtually nothing Mm -hmm. about how that's done. So I think there should be just much more disclosure about— I think of it like a case law. Mm-hmm. I mean, the companies should be disclosing. Now, there'll be privacy issues, so they can't disclose everything about every case. Mm-hmm. But they should be disclosing much more about the content decisions that they're making. Mm-hmm. Because right now we operate, it's almost like government. Right. You know, when government has a secrecy claim, they say, trust us. Mm-hmm. That's what the companies are saying too. And I think that's, we're like way past that. You know, we we can't trust the companies. We need to evaluate, we need oversight whether that's governmental or you know around in the commonwealth part of the world we have things called press councils which are basically mm-hmm. public private over, oversight yes. of of journalism mm-hmm. we could use something like that too in in my book i kind of move in that direction because i think ultimately the big dis- the big question around these issues is who's going to decide these questions of content i'm uncomfortable with it being the companies I'm but also uncomfortable being, with being in government. So we need to figure out a way to do that. And they're doing it anyway. That.
2: They're doing They're all making decisions they're all anyway doing all day. It. So would you serve on the Facebook council? Have you been asked?
3: Um, I don't think I've been asked, um, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm independent. So why
2: wouldn't you if you think it's a good idea?
3: I. It's not a—it's more of a personal thing. I just have other right. things I want to be doing
2: right. right now.
3: I mean, I'm interested in the cross-industry approach. Me.
2: They haven't asked me.
3: They haven't. No. Would you do it?
2: Yes, I would. Yeah. Yes. Yes, just to be watching them, yeah. So I
3: think it would be valuable. So we, mm-hmm. we started, we got, we have a grant from the Knight Foundation mm-hmm. at, at UC Irvine to mm-hmm. actually do um, kind of an oversight study. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be, Good. we'll be kind of doing the oversight the of the oversight. oversight. Yeah. I mean, we need to talk to them and make sure that we can mm-hmm. do the kinds of things necessary. You know, like trial monitoring mm-hmm. around the world? Right. We'll be doing something like well, that. Well, that
2: seems great. I think you'd be great running it, actually. If they're really serious, they will get serious people to be doing this that will give them a pain in the ass. And uh, yeah. I'm guessing they won't.
3: Well, I I mean, I have talked to them. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, they've hired an executive director. Yes, they have. And the executive director was the director of Article 19, which is mm-hmm. it's like the Human Rights Watch of freedom of expression mm-hmm. around the world, a very important organization. So his bona fides on freedom of expression are really, I mean, unassailable. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the problem is the harms— on the platform are not just speech harms. You know, the harassment, the the tracking, the privacy issues. So there's a lot going on there, but I think that was a good step. Mm -hmm. I think that that what we what everybody should be looking at is who actually serves on this board mm-hmm. presumably there'll be a chair or two right my hope is that they're not american mm-hmm. that they come from you know what we call the global south mm-hmm. that there's diversity within the board that it's right. you know so somebody from Myanmar or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh Absolutely. can have the same kind of input and i also think that there needs to be much more ownership of decision making at the local level. Right. I, I mean, I, I think of it this way. I think of, like, imagine if there were no newspapers in the United States, which sadly sometimes it feels like we're Facebook heading. Which is what Facebook
2: and everywhere they are.
3: Exactly. So think about, like, if you were in Los Angeles and there was only the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Great newspaper, right? Like, fabulous newspaper. But I still want a local paper right. to be, you know, conveying to me what's happening in my city. Mm-hmm. And I think Facebook has that same problem. They're mm-hmm. everywhere. But like, what's the local connection? What's the ability of local actors to actually Mm -hmm. get local information that is um, evaluated according to, you know, it can be human rights standards, mm-hmm. but, but with like a local flavor to it. That doesn't really exist right yeah, now. I,
2: and, and it's a question of responsibility. It's like, like, look, this was just a story about the vaxxers. That, that, like this woman gave her kid potatoes, a kid died, or whatever. It was on an anti vax yeah. uh, group on Facebook, and Facebook's been trying to get rid of them, but they just have to get rid of them. Like they're trying, they can't try to get rid of them. They have to get rid of these groups, um, mm-hmm. which are spreading false information. And to hide behind freedom of speech in this case, it's irresponsible.
3: Well, 40%. especially on the paid side. Yeah, I mean, I really think 100%. that the, the idea that, you know, in this McKay Coppins mm-hmm. story in The Atlantic mm-hmm. really underlines this. I think people who haven't been following this, mm-hmm. like you and, and I've been following it for many okay. years, are going to be—they should all read this story because the the use of, a, of the platform and the platforms mm-hmm. and mass media, which buys into it all too often— um, as a as a like a vector for disinformation mm-hmm. is harrowing right. really and the fact that I mean I get I'm, I'm fully on board with the Zuckerberg line that we can't be the arbiter of truth yes, but that, that doesn't mean that they can be the facilitator of untruths
2: they yes. have to figure out that that best balance. line I have heard it said well said David I'm gonna end on that say it again.
3: Oh, I, I just—it just came up. It came with that, up. That's that, great. Right. Just because
2: they don't want to be the arbiter of truth doesn't mean they can be the facilitator, the facilitator of untruth. untruth. That's the smartest thing I've heard in a long time. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Cara. Thank you, David, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Eric America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey E S J. David, where can people find you online?
3: Uh, on my Twitter, David A-K-A-Y-E. A K A Y E.
2: You're an excellent Twitterer. Ah, well, thank you very you're much. You're very good at it. If you and where else can we find your work at the UN?
3: Yeah, so uh, at the UN, if you go to my website that the law school maintains, it's Freedex.org, so
2: dot org. You, you can find all of our reports, reports and various press things. releases, Very important work that Dave is doing. Thank you. If you, you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.
1: HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots, so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO needs so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com.